Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. So my guest today is James Schwartz. James is a professor of philosophy at Wichita State University. He has a PhD in philosophy from Wayne State University, where his dissertation focused on nominalism in mathematics. He is one of the leading figures in the philosophy and ethics of space exploration. He has authored several papers on this topic, published in journals such as Advances in Space Research, Space Policy, Acta Astronautica, and Astropolitics. He is also the co-editor with Tony Milligan of a volume of essays titled The Ethics of Space Exploration that was published by Springer in 2016. Uh, welcome to the show, James. Thank you for having me. So, James, I invited you on the show today to talk about uh, nominalism in mathematics, which is a topic which we're both very keen on. I'm obviously joking. Um, I'm sure you're keen on it, and it actually sounds fascinating and interesting, but I really wanted to talk to you about the ethical issues in space exploration, which is probably more in keeping with the themes that I usually explore in this podcast. So as regular listeners will know, I have stated in the past that my own interest in the philosophy of technology stems from fascination with science fiction as a child. Yet, strangely, I've never really looked into the philosophy of space exploration, which is kind of odd since most of the science fiction that I consumed as a child was focusing on space or space operas and space exploration as a major theme. Nevertheless, it's only in the past few months that I've already started to look into the philosophical literature on this topic, and yours was one of the main names that I came across, and I'm glad to see that this is a topic that seems to be garnering a bit more attention nowadays. So I wanted to start off just by asking you about your own interest in this area. Why did you get into the philosophy or ethics of space exploration, particularly given that your dissertation and background was in the philosophy of mathematics? Yeah, so... It was kind of unplanned, as it were. Uh, I mean, I've always been interested in space exploration. You know, uh, watched a lot of science fiction shows growing up. Read a lot of science. Fi- uh, uh, yeah, read a lot of science fiction novels. Um, went to space camp as a kid in in fifth grade. Um, I started thinking professionally about this while I was in graduate school. I was just sort of uh, at a friend's apartment, thinking one night that hey, I've never read any philosophy papers about space. Uh, maybe I should write one. Uh, and it was in the process of working on that paper that I, you know, got into the literature that did exist, and uh, you know, the paper ended up getting published, and that sort of uh, put my name on a couple folks' radars who invited me to present at conferences, which led to further publications. So a lot of the sort of work I've done uh, ha- has been in the service of, say, other folks' projects in terms of conferences they were organizing or or books they were putting together, uh, but. You know, I have sort of taken ownership over it as well. That this is something that I am very sort of passionate about, and uh, you know, have, 
been very happy to be able to work on and keep working on. I mean, there is a link to the philosophy of math in a sense that, you know, I'm interested in, in methodology and um, the sort of uh, methods of mathematics played a big figure in discussing the issues in my dissertation. And uh, I'm interested in sort of the methodology of space science and, and how that might link up with questions about the value said science. Yeah. Um, I mean, is your sense as well that there has been an increase in interest in the, the philosophical exploration of space um, or the ethics of space exploration in the past kind of decade? I mean, when I looked through the literature on this topic, I noticed there was one special edition of a journal called The Monist back in the late 80s oh, yeah. on space ethics and, or the philosophy of space exploration. And then really not a huge amount until more recent years, but you know, I'm not an expert in the area. So is this something that is growing? Um, yeah, and actually it, it, around the same time the issue of that Monist came out, there was a book uh, in environmental ethics uh, called Beyond Spaceship Earth, uh, edited by the uh, editor of uh, the journal Environmental Ethics, which is the first environmental ethics journal to be put together. Uh, and that brought together a group of people to talk about environmental issues in space exploration. So there was, a, and I'm not sure what the context was. It might have been there were some you know, big proposals going about NASA for, for ambitious projects. But I think what, what really started the interest, and I would say it goes back at least a couple decades, uh, two things. One is... Um, uh, people were starting to realize, hey, we might actually find some life on Mars. Uh, we should start, you know, thinking about that in terms of not only the science projects, but also, you know, would that life be worthy of moral consideration? And around the same time, uh, and I'm thinking, you know, in the mid to late 90s when the Allen Hills meteorite fragment with that little uh, worm-looking uh, feature that might have been evidence of life, as it were, I think, you know, they still haven't officially decided. Uh, there, there's still some uh, disagreement in the community about whether that is evidence of uh, past life or not. But uh, the other thing is uh, people were coming out with uh, papers establishing that it would in principle be possible to terraform Mars. Uh, that, you know, uh, if you can divert some asteroids or do some things to warm up the planet, you can actually succeed in, you know, uh, getting the atmosphere thick enough to, to have a warm enough surface. And then, okay, well, wait a minute, you know, if we're going to remake an entire planet, that's something we should think about before we do. And so that was another area where folks, especially in environmental ethics, uh, got involved in discussions and, you know, tried to uh, apply environmental ethical views to the topic to see, you know, what seems to be the consensus here, that this is a permissible thing to do, that it's impermissible. Uh, and so I think those two things really um, are, are some of the, the two big factors in bringing philosophers to the table, as it were. And one of the things that's really, I guess, kept the involvement up is uh, more the question about, you know, what is the ethical status of, of microbial life that you might discover on Mars or Enceladus or Europa? Uh, and that's probably where most of the activity has been over the last decade, especially. Yeah, I suppose one thing I'm curious about here is just considering the development in analogous kind of techno-ethics spaces, you know, the, uh, from bioethics or neuroethics, which I come from, a lot of the contribution made by philosophers there is, I guess, negative in its initial contribution anyway, that it, it's kind of putting a halt to scientific progress or suggesting that we need to be more reflective and uh, think a bit more deeply about what we're, what we're trying to do. And I mean, there's a, an old saying that, you know, most bioethicists, the answer to any question you ask them is no. You, you can't do it. Is that true in space ethics as well, or is it a bit more kind of heterogeneous? What's the 
sense of it? Um, so uh, partly it's it's that, you know, it, it's part of our professional training that we find problems in things. Uh, so, you know, in some sense, it's natural that as a philosopher, uh, I would, you know, try to find uh, issues and objections to something. Uh, but, you know, it's one thing to, to just only try to find objections. It's another thing to sort of uh, analyze, you know, are those persuasive objections, do they actually stand in the way of going ahead with something? And I think, you know, the philosophical community that thinks about this, um, you've got some fairly pro-space people that that want to really see a, a great moving forward of some of the grand projects, including, you know, human settlement of the moon, Mars, and elsewhere. Uh, you've got some folks that are very much opposed to sort of any increased presence that might be viewed as sort of contamination or, or disruption of a valuable wilderness area. And, you know, the philosopher in me is just really interested in the arguments and, you know, which ones can survive sort of uh, critical scrutiny. And of course, you know, I've got a mixed view myself, and I think we're going to talk about this a bit later in the show, but uh, you know, I think there are aspects of space exploration that are incredibly important that ought to be uh, supported much more extensively than they are. But there are other aspects then that I think, hey, that's not stuff that's too important for us to be working on right now. And in fact, it can get in the way of satisfying the stuff that I think is good. So, you know, I'm sort of uh, of two minds about a few things here. Yeah, and actually your views, as I understand them, have changed or evolved a little bit over time. So let's try and get into that now, and we'll focus initially on the idea of there being some kind of imperative or duty to explore space. So this is something you've touched upon in your work, and certainly the first paper that I came across by you was arguing in favor of the notion that we have a duty to explore space. So I want to look at some of the arguments here and how you might have changed your mind on them. But to start off with, I want to kind of clarify what this is a debate about. So what is meant by this duty to explore space? You know, what, what kind of a duty is it? And what exactly do you mean by exploring space? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's partly, um, I didn't actually have a very sophisticated account of, of what, what exploring space meant in that original paper. This is the 2011 paper, the first one that I published in Environmental Ethics. I wasn't really discriminating the, the different types of activities uh, that, that one might have in mind uh, when you talk about the exploration of space. Uh, and there's a paper by Dan Lester and one of his colleagues where uh, they really sort of say, okay, you know, w- what does exploration mean? Well, it can mean all sorts of things. It can mean you know, studying a place uh, to satisfy scientific curiosity. It can mean resource exploitation. It can mean attempting to settle a place. And so in, in my sort of original position, I wasn't making any such discrimination. I'm just thinking, okay, uh, we have these long-term threats to human survival. Space exploration seems to be needed to uh, mitigate those threats over the long term, uh, either because of resource depletion on the planet or because of, say, uh, sort of threats like uh, asteroid collisions or solar flares or some such. And so uh, the, the sort of strategy uh, that I adopted in that paper was, okay, we have an obligation to sort of keep the species going, and it seems like space exploration is needed for that. Uh, so, you know, if we have a duty to keep the species going, and if this particular activity is necessary for carrying out that duty, then it seems like we have an obligation to, uh, you know, engage in space exploration. Yeah, if I could just kind of jump back in here, because I, I want to just focus initially on this, the moral grounding for the duty. So that what you're saying here is that the moral grounding is in species survival, um, and I, you know, I've seen other people express this in different terms. I can't remember the name of the author now, but the notion of we have some kind of eth- an ethic of life towards like the preservation and protection of life, which I guess is, is beyond the human species. 
And, I, and in your more recent paper, you talk about human welfare or well-being. But obviously, the, the duty here is a, is quite abstract. And, you know, I mean, I'm, there's a lot of philosophical controversy about this, but you have a duty to the species as a whole and to future generations of a species. And that seems to me like a, quite a tricky thing to defend. So, I mean, what's your view on that? Is it like how plausible or credible do you think this duty towards species survival is? Um well, I mean, first I would say that it's not necessarily an individual obligation, that it's a societal obligation. I don't know that there's anything I personally can do to actually you know, see that this uh, obligation gets satisfied. Now, if I'm resourceful enough and evil enough, I can certainly work against it. Um, and, and I think you know, where I would want to try to defend the idea that, that we ought to continue keeping humans around is, is that uh, it seems wrong to, to uh, let us die. So you know, there's, uh, in, in bioethics, right, I mean, you might try to draw a distinction between killing and letting die. And of course, right, killing for the most part is generally wrong. But then the question is, is it sometimes permissible to let someone die, say, if, you know, um, if by saving them, you're just going to cause them to lead a life of intense suffering and it'll be a short life. And so by, say, pulling the plug on the life support, you're sort of doing them a favor, as it were. And they might even want that to happen. And, and that's the kind of situation, it seems, where you would say maybe it's permissible to let someone die. And that doesn't seem to describe, you know, our possible fate, that uh, it's not as though by not uh, trying to uh, pursue space settlement that – uh, you're just pulling the plug in the sense that uh, we're going to wither with an incredibly painful death here. Uh, we're going to keep going for quite a while, right? So it seems like by not doing this, it, it seems to be a case of impermissible uh, letting die. So I'm not so concerned about the status of the duty in the first place. There are some nearby concerns uh, that have been raised. Uh, in particular, there's a, a line of reasoning that suggests that it's hard to say that uh, you could commit rights violations against future persons uh, because okay, you know, suppose 200 years from now you know we, we've wasted all of Earth's resources and, and everyone alive is living a really miserable life uh, and you could imagine such a person complaining hey my rights have been violated you know I have a right to uh, various things including you know the resources that I need to stay alive and live a meaningful life and so you know how wrong it was for us in the present day to have you know not changed our, our resource consumption habits. Uh, but of course, if we had changed our resource consumption habits, then, you know, well, people are going to lead different lives than they would have. They're going to end up meeting different people. And so p different people are going to uh, get together to produce offspring. And so, you know, long enough in the future, you're not going to have any of the same people. And so it seems like by if we change our policies today, the, the person's rights who we would have been violating would never come into existence in the first place. And that that's an objection to the idea that by you know, wasting resources in the present day, we somehow violate the rights of those in the future. But, you know, I, I think the question about species survival is not quite that. I think it's more about, you know, whether there are people in the future and not necessarily what their quality of life is like. Now, mind you, I, I still think there are good ways to argue that we ought to ensure not only that people continue to exist, but that they lead meaningful lives. Because, you know, if the only way to save the species is by creating a situation where it is utter misery, you know, may, maybe... Maybe we shouldn't, right? Because maybe we're just creating much more pain uh, than pleasure. Um, so, you know, if, if you're thinking of the movie Iron Sky, which is a horrible, horrible movie, uh, but one thing it's a lesson uh, of is how not to uh, save the species by space settlement. Um, you know, Nazis on the moon uh, is not the way that we need to keep going as a species. Yeah, I mean, I think I remember seeing that movie 
popping up on my Netflix feeds, but I, I don't think I've ever watched it. Um, it's it's uh, not worth it. You're saying train, train wreck doesn't begin to describe it, but <laughs> but but the the important point here is that if there is a duty to ensure survival, it's not a duty at all costs. It's so it's more than mere survival. Well, yeah, there, there's no such thing as a duty at all costs, right? Um, you know, any particular obligation could be overridden by other obligations. I mean, it's in many ways context sensitive. I would say. Uh, now, that's maybe not a position that every ethicist is going to endorse. Uh, but I mean, that, that I, I don't want to be absolutist about things uh, because I think uh, it's very difficult to to ground, you know, absolute obligations that could never possibly be overridden, no matter how extenuating the circumstances. Yeah, but it, it's it's more it's more than a duty to ensure mere survival. It's a duty to ensure some kind of degree of flourishing or worthwhileness to the lives of future humans. Right. And I mean, you could maybe accept, um, you know, really harsh living conditions if there's an expectation that at some point in the future, things get better. And I don't, I don't know if we're going to end up having time to talk about world ship travel, but that's, that, that's uh, an area where that can maybe come up that if, you know, if life is really, really crummy on that world ship, uh, you have to have a really good promise of, you know, things getting better down the line in terms of when they make it to the target system. Uh, and then, of course, it also matters, you know, how long that voyage lasts and just how bad things are. But uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier on that like a lot of debates in space ethics intersect and overlap with debates in environmental ethics, and that seems to be where a lot of the contemporary literature emerged from. Uh, again, as I understand it, you get some views in environmental ethics that go beyond just claims about a duty to ensure the mere survival or sorry the survival of the human species you know, it's a duty towards ecosystems more generally and you also get like as part of that some misanthropic views that actually it would be a good thing for humans to die out because we're so such a negative blight on the ecosystem more generally what are your thoughts on those kinds of more general environmental duties. So on the one hand, I, I would want to distinguish between views that, you know, don't privilege humans uh, versus views that are indeed misanthropic, because I think someone, you know, who's maybe uh, really not open to uh, moral consideration of ecosystems might try to view somebody promulgating a view like that as being misanthropic, that, you know, oh, well, if, if anything other than humans is valuable, then you hate humans. I mean, that, that's, that's, a, that's a crazy description of that view. Um, and, and so I would say uh, I, I am open to these sort of non-anthropocentric approaches here. Uh, and in part, I think one thing they show is that our arguments for why humans are so special maybe aren't the most persuasive arguments that, you know, it just tends to be assumed in, in these settings that, that uh, humans are intrinsically valuable, that they, they are owed moral consideration. That's not a claim that people argue for all that much uh, in my experience. And so it would be interesting to see, you know, how is the argument of the value of humans uh, much different from the types of arguments that, that folks make that are trying to defend the idea that, say, individual, uh, you know, animals are owed moral consideration or that species are owed moral consideration or that ecosystems as a whole uh, are owed moral consideration. And, of course, saying something uh, – saying that something is owed moral consideration doesn't mean it gets counted the same as something else, that – that I could say, hey, we need to take cats into account, but that doesn't mean uh, that they need to be given as much weight as humans. Well, maybe it means they need to be given more weight, because I, I know uh, I like my cats a lot more than quite a few people. So, so it's not to say that you know when you grant moral consideration to other types of things that you're saying everything's on a par. And I think that can get lost in people that, that aren't 
open to such a view. So, so I would have a hard time defending a misanthropic view that says, you know, humans are sort of actively evil in the sense that they need to go away. Uh, I'd be open to the idea that maybe we've got too many people on the planet. I don't know how I'd want to respond as a solution to that. But, um, you know, I, th I think there's maybe some, uh, some way to defend a claim like that. And, of course, uh, a space exploration enthusiast is going to say, hey, here's a way that we can, you know, reduce the impact of, uh, of humanity on the planet by having people go off planet. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I think the distinction you drew between views that don't privilege humanity or that are non-anthropocentric versus the views that are actively misanthropic is, is helpful and useful here. But, you know, we've been dwelling, I guess, on the first premise of an argument here, which is you know, what's, the, what's the underlying duty the more important premise, for the purposes of this conversation anyway, is the connection between space exploration and that duty. So in your early paper, you were suggesting that it may, you were at least partially in agreement with the notion that it might be necessary to ensure human survival, that we explore space. And you had three arguments for this in the paper, which you can talk about in a moment. But you, you also seem to have changed your view that it's not necessary anymore, or you don't view it as as strong a case as you originally thought. So maybe you could outline your thinking. Well, so again, so, so the position in that paper, it's been a while since I've revisited it in part because, you know, when, when one does a lot more work and one goes back to one's early papers, you know, one just gets embarrassed. Yeah, I'm, I'm bringing up your early demo tape. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I think the grounding, uh, so, so there were sort of three arguments presented. I uh, remember the first two, I guess. Uh, so there's, there's an argument about, you know, um, overpopulation and overconsumption of resources. And again, that's a threat to human survival. And so maybe space can free us from, from depleting things down here. There's an argument about, you know, uh, cosmic threats and how um, extra space technology. Asteroid impacts and things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, and space settlements can avoid the extinction of the species in the event of global terrestrial catastrophe. And then there's the sort of, you know, long range consideration about, Hey, you know, earth is not going to be, even if we, we avoid those things, you know, Earth has a finite lifespan, and ultimately the solar system uh, has a finite lifespan for human habitability, so we have to go elsewhere if we're thinking very long term. Uh, and it, it's not as though I, I necessarily disagree uh, with those arguments in spirit. What I'm not so sure about is what they demand of us at present. And of course, you know, the, the different obligations entail different activities that these sort of, hey, Earth is not going to uh, support human life forever. That's an argument for space settlement. Uh, the idea that um, we could, you know, experience extinction because of an asteroid collision. Uh, that's an argument maybe for space settlement, but, but most especially for developing uh, means of protecting Earth. Because, you know, if, if you're trying to maximize the benefit to humanity, you're going to help a lot more people by diverting that asteroid than you are having a, a settlement of a few hundred on the moon. Uh, and then the resource consumption one, you know, that's an argument for certain forms of space resource exploitation. And that's probably the one that I, I, I disagree with the most now. And, and so what's changed? Uh, you know, wh why has my thinking changed? Well, it's because I've come to, to recognize that, again, there are these different types of activities that, that all fall under this heading of space exploration. And they do respond to different justifications to different obligations. Uh, and so depending on the timescale you're talking about, um, we might not be able to effectively satisfy certain duties, but we might be able to effectively satisfy others. And so I think among the things we've talked about, so, so duty to ensure species survival, a duty to protect Earth, a duty to provide for the material needs of humanity. I think in addition to those, we have an obligation to you know, learn about the solar system, to pursue basic research, including basic research in space science. 
And I think that you know, over the short to medium term, say talking about decades to a couple of centuries, uh, that there are a lot of ways that these duties can come into conflict. That if you think you know, what we ought to be doing right now is uh, mining asteroids for water and platinum group metals, well, you know, there are a lot of scientists that would want to study those asteroids. And you know, if the only work that's ever done is in, on the mining end, then you're never going to have uh, the, the knowledge gain that you might have if you let the scientists in first. That if what you want to do is strip mine the moon for helium three, again, you know, it would be you're maybe losing an opportunity for scientists to investigate that environment in its pristine state. And so, yeah, could I just maybe jump in because I think I mean what you said out there is um, important and it kind of gets into a number of different debates about the, the form of space exploration and the prioritization of the different forms of ex- space exploration. Um, so th- there's one debate here about you know, manned space exploration versus unmanned space exploration that I'd like to get into. So what I'm interpreting in this argument is that you think the immediate priority should be on scientific forms of space exploration, not settlement or exploitation of resources. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So then what form does the scientific exploration take in your mind, or what form should it take? Uh, so I, I'm not. Uh, I don't have any preconceived ideas. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, humans only or, or robots only. I think um, you know, human exploration is generally much more effective. Now the, the robots are closing the gap, right? As we increase in sophistication, there. Um, so so enter concerns about you know, okay, do we have issues related to AI? That's not something I, I think about myself. But uh, you know, so I think uh, it's just you know what I'd like to hear is. You know, what are the science goals? What does the scientific community think is the most effective way to to carry out those goals? And, and if the answer is human exploration is really uh, the best thing to do here, then I'll support that. If the answer is that robotic exploration is the best thing to do, I'll support that. And of course, contamination is a big issue when you're thinking about the search for life. You know, there's no such thing as a human that visits Mars that doesn't leave some microbes there. And even the robotic missions do so. But of course, it's it's much easier to reduce the bio load on a, on a rover than it is to reduce the bio load on a human being. Um, and so, you know, it depends on what you're studying, what location in the solar system that you're investigating. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I don't have any inherent objection to either human or uh, robotic exploration. Uh, and I think insofar as there are situations where, you know, uh, boots on the ground are really helpful for the science, that can enable some of the other things, the more ambitious uh, projects that people want to do, right? I mean, science outposts as a precursor for human settlement somewhere. I mean, that's an idea I actually like because, okay, we've got the science coming in first, uh, and, and then that paves the way for, you know, sort of future settlement. Um, and, and now we ha- haven't necessarily lost a pristine environment for scientific study because it was studied prior to any uh, big disruption by wider human use. Yeah, so it's it's the scientific need that dictates the form that the space exploration should take, and so you're agnostic about the manned versus unmanned yeah, concern. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of the vitriol there comes from people's sort of disciplinary binder, uh, blinders. That you know, if you're an astronomer, you know, what do you care about? You care about telescopes, I guess. So right, I mean, we can put telescopes up in space without human settlements. Uh, maybe the uh, dark side of the moon would be a good place to have a, a radio astronomy base, but. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're someone in that discipline, you know, you might not see the need for a lot of humans in space. 
On the other hand, if you are a, a geologist, a planetary scientist, you know, that's, that's a situation where you really value having a person there to make decisions about what to look at, what to take samples of. And, and so it's a worry, right, that, that people aren't transcending their, their disciplines when they enter into these debates. Uh, and, and that's something where I think, you know, uh, philosophers, especially philosophers of science, uh, could, could really help get involved and say, well, hey, let's, you know, we need to look not just at the benefits to this one particular discipline or subdiscipline, but, you know, to all of the different areas uh, that science generally might be interested in. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point because I, I grow frustrated sometimes when I hear people like, I think, Steven Weinberg in the past has been very dismissive of the idea of manned space exploration because he thinks it just serves no scientific purpose. But there are contradictory views, like Ian Crawford, who I'm sure you're familiar with, has made the, made the case for manned space exploration for scientific purposes. Yeah, I think both he and Charles Cockhill, uh, you know, have done a series of papers. Um, and, and I mean, that is sort of where uh, I got the talking point about effectiveness, right? Because uh, it still remains the case that, you know, human exploration is, is much more effective. I and mean, when you look at the total number of miles traveled and the time it took to travel them, uh, Apollo versus, uh, you know, Mars, Opportunity or Spirit, uh, you know, the, the human missions just, just blow away the robotic missions in terms of capability. But at the same time, right, if the humans are going to be there and contaminating what you're trying to study, which, you know, Mars, Enceladus, Europa, right, I really worry about sending humans there until, you know, we're very convinced that there's not any important scientific finding that you would spoil, right? Because, I mean, you, you don't want to spend a trillion dollars on a, on a, on a, a human mission to uh, Enceladus only to discover life that you brought with you. Um, the, the other question that I have is, like, so if... if you're arguing for this, the prioritization of the scientific forms of exploration as a first step anyway. I mean, on what grounds are they being prioritized? Is it, is it in, in, the intrinsic good of scientific exploration or understanding of the universe? So maybe a slightly kind of poetic or it's just the kind of uh, raw fascination and need for scientific understanding or is it some more instrumental goal because it'll help us, you know, get Teflon that we can use on frying pans, just to use the classic example here. Or, you know, is it just a combination of both? It doesn't really matter to you. It's intrinsic and instrumental motivators that take uh, center stage here. Well, so I think, I think both cases can be made. And I think the sort of, um, uh, what do you call it, um, the sort of spin-off justification, I mean, there's a there's a nuanced version of that, and then there's a very surface version of that, which is, you know, just people point to, oh, you know, look at all the, the stuff we got from NASA in the 60s and 70s. I think the more nuanced version has to do with, you know, how science itself works, what things lead to progress in basic science, and how that plays a role in things like technology development. And so an example from a friend of mine, Gonzalo Munavar. Uh, so suppose you're, you know, in, in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, and you're trying to improve surgical techniques, in particular cleanliness and, and the ability to make, um, you know, incisions that aren't too damaging to the patient. Uh, well, what are you going to think about? Like, okay, I can make the scalpel a little sharper. I can try to find a slightly better metal that can allow a, a finer edge. Uh, but at no point will it ever occur to you to use a laser uh, because the whole idea really hadn't been concocted yet because that depended on certain work in theoretical science related to optics and light. Uh, and it wasn't until you had that basic science that you even had the ideas that could allow you to even think about lasers in the first place. And then it wasn't too long after lasers uh, sort of were around that somebody said, hey, maybe we can use this in surgery. 
And so it's the idea that, you know, by engaging in basic science, you're able to sort of rewrite the rules of how the world works. And it's through that process of rewriting that you get new ideas, new concepts that generally always end up, you know, improving our lives somehow. Uh, so that's the instrumental case. And um, if that's all there is, I still think it's a good case. Uh, one thing I'm interested in, and, um, you know, I'm hoping I'm starting to write a book where I'm going to try to lay this out, uh, is a more uh, intrinsic case. That the idea that the knowledge acquisition, you know, independent of its uh, usefulness, ultimately, uh, is, is important. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to make this case. I've, I've been uh, reading up on uh, an area of uh, philosophy, in particular epistemology and the epistemic value debate, which is specifically about, you know, what is the value of knowledge? Uh, and there's a, a concept that comes up in this uh, understanding, which is not just having knowledge, but sort of being able to deploy knowledge in a way that lets you speak about unanticipated cases, uh, to draw connections between items of knowledge that you have. Um, and I think that's really what science uh, does at, at its basic level is, is it gives us understanding. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, I'm very interested in that idea because um, I'm writing a book as well about kind of meaning and automation. And I've, I do think that knowledge and understanding in particular are kind of parts of the good life, so to speak, to, you know, to use that philosophical term. Now, you're critical of certain views on understanding. I haven't read your paper on this, but you know, there's the cognitive achievement view of understanding that it, one of the reasons why understanding is good is because it's it's just like other forms of achievement. You've by understanding something, you've overcome obstacles to the perspicuity of reality or something. Um, you, you're rejecting that idea, I think. Am I correct? Well, um, it's a very particular problem uh, that I'm saying that view doesn't solve, and um, so it's known as sometimes the Mino problem, or what are the other names for it? It's been a while since I've thought about that paper. We don't have to get into it if you don't want to. If yeah, it's, yeah. If it's so, so, so there's been this criticism that uh, accounts of knowledge um, left open why knowledge was more valuable than true belief. So, you know, if I have a true belief that, that hasn't been justified in the best way, um, you know, if I, if I accidentally come to believe something that's true, uh, say that, you know, I walk past a clock that says uh, 9 p.m. Uh, and it is 9 p.m. and so now I truly believe that it's 9 p.m. But turns out that clock uh, broke exactly 12 hours prior. You know, I have a true belief about the time, but I don't have knowledge because we think knowledge needs to be created, you know, in the right way. Uh, and so views of understanding were, were posed as uh, an ability to say why it is that when you understand something, that's better than merely having a true belief. And so all I was objecting to in that paper was that this particular account of understanding overcomes that problem. Uh, I wasn't necessarily arguing against the claim that um, understanding involves an achievement, although others have. Yeah, uh, so we don't have to go into that for the purposes of this, this discussion, but the, uh, the important point is that this intrinsic case for the scientific exploration of space is partly grounded anyway on this notion of understanding and the, the good of understanding. And I mean, I, yeah, I like that idea, yeah. What you had mentioned about you know being part of the good life, I think is the way that I would try to approach it. Um, and this also comes from some of the literature on wisdom. You, you could make a claim that you know having scientific understandings is a component of you know being wise, um, you know realizing human excellences. Uh, and then of course the question would be, okay, so well you know why is it 
that, that we need to do this in the first place. So it seems like we're just assuming that it's part of the good life rather than arguing for it. So that's you know things to worry about. But I, I think that's roughly the position to take, um, or at least that's the one that I think uh, of all the approaches I know about stands the most chance of success. And you know, does that give you a strong argument for space exploration? Uh, I'm not sure. It gives me an in principle argument. Uh, and maybe that's all I need to establish its intrinsic value in that, you know, how it actually affects policy and, and decisions would have more to do with ins instrumental uses. But, you know, it's also just, hey, I'm a philosopher. I'm interested in these sort of intrinsic value questions. Yeah, and I also think that's the real role or contribution that philosophers and philosophers of science can make to this discussion about space exploration. Um, I do want to move on to something else, though. So... Uh, just to put a line under that conversation, one also th other thing I like about that idea is just that it moves us a little bit away from the idea that space exploration is justified on the basis of species survival, and which I have some concerns about. But I want to move into a, a separate topic, which is more about human destiny in space. So oftentimes, you know, there are a lot of grandiose claims made for space exploration, that it's somehow our destiny as frontiers people to explore space. Also, there's sometimes the contradictory view, which is that it's human arrogance and hubris which is driving space exploration, and that should be resisted and stamped out. What's your stance on those kinds of grandiose human destiny type arguments? I mean, I think they're both uh, probably too wrong-headed to stand a chance of being true. I mean, so I, I'm a rather secular person, and so when when you start talking about fate and destiny, then that just sounds like fairy tales to me. I don't believe such things exist. And of course, you know, if it's our destiny to, to go to space, then we don't need arguments for that because it'll just happen anyway, right? Um, I think I owe that point to uh, Laurel Delgado-Lopez. Yeah, I mean, there could be complex views of destiny where you still play some sort of role in it, but, but it's, hard, it's hard to know what, what you have to do or what the case is. Yeah, but I appreciate the point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it doesn't help decision-making, right? It doesn't help us decide what things to do in the present, uh, because you could argue that you know any particular example of uh, space exploration is part of you know carrying out this great destiny of ours. So you know, well, hey, you know, what should we be spending more money on? Uh, that position doesn't really help us there. Although maybe most of the people that talk about destiny are talking about settlement, so that's the only kind of exploration they have in mind. Uh, but I think it's you know, I think. There's a group that that might resonate with, and that you know when you have mass administrators giving public speeches, you know uh, there's an assumption that you know hey these are the messages that will resonate, and I don't know that that's ever been tested. I don't know that that's ever been measured or surveyed. So you know there's a you know it, it's it's the line people always give, um, and I guess the assumption is since they've been giving it for so long it must work, but at the same time we haven't really <laughs> dramatically. Uh, increased our support for space exploration. So maybe that's evidence that, you know, these narratives aren't working. As far as the sort of arrogance is, um, uh, there's sort of this presumption that, you know, we can do whatever we want without thinking about consequences, I think is the root of that. Um, thinking that we're capable of things that we're not capable of. You know, it's one thing to just sort of blindly make that uh, claim. It's another thing to actually, you know, assess where are we at? What are the activities that were, are within our capabilities? Uh, and so, of course, I'd agree that if, you know, if we attempt something with you know, a horribly low chance of success, we might be arrogant if we you know, don't even recognize that. Uh, but if we're aware of the odds uh, and if we're prepared to learn from them, 
Uh, and, you know, we're not doing anything that causes half the species to die. You know, we're not going to do anything where the, um, you know, the, the bad outcome is a terrible outcome. Um, you know, I don't see how you could reasonably call that an act of hubris. I mean, I want to ask you here about, you know, the Elon Musk question. So the, the idea of having this kind of grand project of a manned mission to Mars or a settlement on Mars, ultimately, I mean, what's your take on that? Is it, is it useful to have those kind of grand aims or projects as long as we go about them in a sensible and careful, incremental fashion? Or does it not help to have those grand ideals or projects? You know, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted here with, with the issue of Musk in particular, because, right, he cares about settlement on Mars. And I, I don't recall that I've ever heard him talk much about the science to be done there. And in particular, right, I mean, Mars is of great interest in the search for life. For the most part, um, there are areas where, you know, not even uh, the Curiosity rover can go to because it hasn't been contaminated in the right, or hasn't been, it has been contaminated. Uh, it hasn't been decontaminated to the appropriate degree to sort of explore the special regions on Mars, which are the ones where, you know, we, we think are, are the most likely uh, sites for finding uh, evidence of life or, or, or traces of past life. You know, that doesn't seem to be on, on Musk's radar, that you know, there's a lot of good science that sort of requires there not to be lots of humans there. Uh, because, you know, once humans go there, there there's no getting rid of uh, the, the microbial organisms that they will take with them. Uh, you know, uh, Chris McKay has talked about biologically reversible exploration. And of course, what Musk is proposing is not biologically reversible. And so that's one thing that worries me is that, you know, it seems like there's only one goal in mind here. And there's really only a strong attempt to push forward ideas and projects that, that help with that one particular goal. Uh, and I think we need to be a lot more pluralistic about, you know, what's important in space and, you know, what, what different planets, what different environments can, can help, how they can help us with science versus other goals. Uh, and, and the other thing that I find concerning about this is just that, you know, it seems to be Musk right now is really driving the public narrative and the public discussion. Uh, and, and, I, and I don't like that because I don't think it's, it's an example of a very deeply considered view. Uh, in the sense of, you know, balancing all of the different considerations and stakeholders that are involved in space exploration. But more generally, the so there are problems with the way in which Musk conceives of the project, but more generally the idea of having a grand project in mind or a big aim. What's your view on that? don't know if I've got much to say there. I mean, it, I think it would have to do with, you know, well, what is that grand project? Because depending on its details, it could be something worthwhile. It could be something, eh, it could be something dangerous. And then, you know, if the idea of having a grand project is to sort of, you know, rally people around it to, to inspire, I'm also going to worry about, well, you know, is it is it even the case that those sorts of things are genuinely inspirational in that way? And that's another area where um, it seems like the evidence we have is a bit underwhelming. Um, so the whole idea of the you know Apollo project um, being this great inspirational force, you know, there's not a lot of good evidence supporting that. I mean, if you look at the sort of charts of you know how many people were getting uh, degrees in science, um, they do track the funding that NASA had in say the 60s and 70s. You know, as NASA's funding increased in the early 60s and spiked in the mid to late 60s, and then took a big dip in the mid 70s. Uh, you know, you see sort of with an aftershock the same thing happening to degrees across the STEM disciplines. Uh, but you also saw the same thing happening to humanities degrees and education degrees and medical degrees. Basically, every discipline had that same pattern. 
in part because if you looked at wider funding for science in the U.S. over that same period, it had the same basic pattern in terms of a spike uh, in the mid to late 60s and then a reduction uh, thereafter. Um, so what were people responding to? I don't think it was inspiration. I think it was, hey, I could make money if I go into this field, so let me go get a degree here. Um, so I think people you know, respond much more locally uh, and, and to much more near-term economic incentives than they do to any sort of broad dream, which isn't to say there aren't some people out there that do, but, but I don't think you've got evidence supporting the idea that, oh, it's, it's just NASA needs a vision, ESA needs a vision, and that's what will bring all of these things together. Uh, there, there's, there's, a, there's a word for that in philosophy. It's called bullshit, which means to speak without concern for whether what you're saying is true or false. That is to make a claim without even checking the evidence. Um, and, and that's a worry I have about a lot of the, the arguments, uh, especially put forward in, in the sort of more public sphere, is that people don't bother to, to check. They just you know, take, the, take the talking point that sounds good. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the Apollo and the impact that it had on science degrees and higher education, I've often heard that in the past, but I, yeah, I've never really looked into the facts of it. But even a moment's reflection suggests to me that there's pr- something pretty fishy about it because there was a massive increase in higher education in other countries around the same time that presumably had nothing to do with the space program, per se. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, uh, of course, Vietnam was happening then, and so a lot of people were, you know, trying to go to school to get deferments um, uh, from the draft. And so that's another thing that, you know, drove people into uh, college and, and uh, graduate school. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's just absurd to, you know, point to this one thing. I mean, it's a ca- probably a case of just, you know, mere correlation. Now, of course, you know, if you're spending more money on space, then yes, there will be a demand for jobs in the space sector. So you know, I don't want to doubt that at all. Um, but, it, you know, it's it's the money that you're spending on it, the careers that you're making available, not this, oh, I feel so inspired by watching, you know, these launches or anything. No, I mean, you, you've kind of gotten into the, the third topic I wanted to cover, which was this the myths that abound in space advocacy. So, I mean, I, you mentioned at the outset that you are passionate about this area, and obviously you're, you're a philosopher, so you have mixed views on things, or you're, you're, you know, you're not going to come down very clearly on particular issues. You want to weigh the uh, considerations and the evidence. Um but you are concerned about these myths that tend to dominate in public discourse. So we've mentioned a couple of them there. I guess the the myth of public inspiration and the myth of the frontier spirit. Are there other myths that you think are particularly problematic in the debate about um, space advocacy? Well, so, so let me, I guess, make a general comment uh, to begin with. So, yeah, I mean, it's partly... As a philosopher, right, I care about quality of argumentation, but I also share with scientists more broadly a concern with, you know, making sure that we base uh, our views on evidence. And, you know, it's somewhat surprising when you see people that otherwise do really good work in their disciplines, all of a sudden when they start talking about space exploration, their ability to know what is supported by evidence just absolutely disappears. So, I mean, I think there's something ironic about that. And also, you know, if what your goal is, is to sort of, you know, improve overall scientific literacy, now this hasn't been tested as it were, but I mean, one thought is, shouldn't you be modeling good scientific practice when you advocate for science? And, you know, this just hasn't really been studied in the way uh, that it would need to be for us to know one way or the other. I mean, how do you effectively advocate for science, for things like space exploration, you know, what things actually get people on board? Uh, and in part because, you know, space exploration, as expensive as it is, uh, still is not a major expense on federal levels. 
Uh, and so, you know, it doesn't warrant the kind of attention uh, from the people that would fund the sociological projects. So, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a case where it'd be nice to have more data. Uh, it's not clear uh, if there's going to be money to support that sociological research. Uh, so, but anyway, so, so, so what are some of the, the other claims then that I think get made often that, you know, really just have, there's a lack of attention paid to, to what evidence is or is not available. Uh, one of them would be this idea that, you know, we are explorers by nature, that, you know, uh, this kind of relates to claims about destiny, but it could be meant more as a cultural or, or biological claim, so that, that you know, it's, it's part of what it is to be human, either as to be a member of a human culture or to be a member of Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, that you yearn to explore. Uh, and then one that I've thought about very recently um, is uh, the assumption that we're all interested in uh, whether extraterrestrial life exists and that we are all, uh, you know, greatly interested in what search uh, either through SETI or, uh, or through astrobiology uh, uncovers apropos of uh, life on Mars, Europa, Enceladus, uh, and so forth. Uh, and, and I think these are claims that, uh, you know, there is maybe some evidence out there, uh, but people make those sort of claims without ever even checking to see, you know, what does that evidence indicate? Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll let you decide from there uh, which one we talk about. I mean, I'm not, I'm not attracted ever to claims about there being some inherent nature or essence to human um, cultures or to, yeah, to human nature. Um, how, like, however, I, like, I do sometimes find myself attracted to certain ideas that I don't know if I can rationally justify, and they may be mythical. So again, to go back actually a little bit to some of Ian Crawford's work on the case for space exploration and manned space exploration, you know, some of his arguments are quite mythical in style, I think. You know, the, the, so he has this notion that we need to build a human civilization that's both stable and dynamic and that has an open future. So I, like, I find myself attracted to that notion that space exploration would be a way of guaranteeing this, but I don't know if I can rationally justify it or if I have a, of a well-thought-out idea about it. I mean, humans are attracted to myths. Humans are attracted to narratives of certain forms. Is it such a bad thing if we're attracted to certain narratives if, if the goal or the end product is a good thing? If the, the end product fits with what your desire is, does it matter if we adopt these kinds of mythical stories? Yeah, and I take it, um, you know, that, that's a way of objecting to the whole project I've been engaged in the last couple of years in this whole myth-free uh, space advocacy. You know, if these act are actually successful at rallying interest, then, you know, isn't that in some sense a good thing? Because it, it realizes uh, ends that we'd like to see realized. And I guess the two things I would say uh, on that level would be, I'm not sure that we know that it's effective in that way. I don't think that's ever been measured, so we can't just presume that, yes, that is how people come to get excited about things. And then, you know, partly it's it's a hope for improved discourse and improved ability of, of the, the general public to, to engage in deliberation that, that we recognize that, no, those are not really the persuasive grounds for undertaking a project, that we should have a more rational approach. Uh, now, is that something that, that one actually has hope will... <laughs> will occur. Uh, you know, partly this is a call to, to, to get especially sociologists and psychologists a little more involved in, in working on this because, you know, it would be nice to know, you know, what is it that actually gets people interested, gets people excited? 
uh, because when you look at, hey, uh, this is a project that sounds really interesting to me, this is something I'm curious about, or, or that makes me feel hopeful for the future, people are really idiosyncratic. You know, curiosity is not something that takes the same shape and form for every person. No, uh, we're curious about different things. Uh, some people are more prone to seek out information. Uh, some people are more prone to seek out, you know, new sensations, thrill-seeking. Uh, and so, there, you know, there's not one attitude that typifies all of us. And in particular, you know, a passion for space exploration does not certainly typify or certainly does not uh, typify the species. A worry here is that, you know, when you tie it to a certain myth, you're maybe limiting uh, your audience to only those individuals that, that are oh, shall we say, open to that, that idea about the future. The hope is that, you know, providing reasons can increase your audience. But again, you know, I, I don't want to uh, point that out as the way to go until I've got some good evidence that says uh, people are going to be responding to reasons, when in fact we've got lots of evidence that emotion plays a, a larger role in decision-making for most folks than, than, than reason. Um, so, you know, I, you know I, I've got this balance between I'm a philosopher, these, this is the way I'd really like the world to work versus, okay, I know a bit about how the world works. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I think the interesting thing in a lot of, of what you're saying about your work anyway is, is this um, focus on policy. So it's the, it's the bridge from the philosophical to the political or policy oriented. But I, I could imagine it would be quite difficult for somebody like a you know, director of NASA to make a pitch for funding at a federal level, giving evidence in front of a, um, a committee in the Congress, if they didn't have some kind of grand narrative or grand myth that the politician could buy into and could sell to people, which may not be grounded in reasons and evidence. And I'm, yes, those would be pretty pessimistic about the notion that a highly you know, rationalistic evidentiary approach to this could work. In practice, I mean, I mean, it's it's a game on many levels, right? So, so the, the the people at NASA might be playing the game to lobby for funding from from the folks in, in Congress, and of course, the folks in Congress are playing a game to make sure that they get reelected. And you know, they've been operating under certain assumptions about how that works. And you know, are those assumptions correct? Uh, is the ultimate question there? Uh, in part, so, so so there's a concern, I guess, about you know what what is the most effective way versus what is the the most coherent way to go about rallying public support. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, a lot of this advocacy literature is sort of presented in more scientific contexts, where the audience isn't the lay public or the general public, but rather, you know, people in this particular field, right? Because I mean, your average person is not going on and reading articles in space policy or or astropolitics, and you still see the, the same promulgation of beliefs without evidence, even in those more, you know, peer-reviewed scientific settings. So, I mean, I'm also trying to rally better accountability in reasoning uh, in the sort of more professional areas. Because, again, I mean, it's just something that, that, that it can shock you sometimes when, okay, wait a minute, this is, this is someone who, you know, gathers evidence, makes determinations on the basis of it for a living, and yet when they move here, that ability goes out the window, yeah. But I mean, it's amazing how often that happens when there's, you know, incentives to suppress contradictory evidence or, you know, it's nice, it's a nice story to tell and you think it might be effective in drumming up interest in, in the area. Uh, so you latch onto it irrespective of the evidence. I mean, this is kind of tangential, but this happens all the time as far as I can make out in university settings when universities try to sell education to 
students and I myself have been involved in some of these claims. So, we, you know, you appeal to certain statistics or metrics that are used to measure your performance, but you know they're all bullshit, but you have to go along with playing the game. The game is developed in a certain way that you can't not make those claims. Yeah, but it's just like, I mean, it, it, I could point to a good half dozen or more examples of space policy papers, not I mean, space policy more generally, not in that journal specifically, but, you know, hey, here, here are the battery of 50 reasons why we need to do this particular space thing. And now if there's another paper about a slightly different space thing, and here are the same 50 reasons. And, you know, it's just like you know, people are grasping for, you know, everything that might possibly work rather than, you know, spending the time to check and see, okay, is that a good coherent reason? Yeah, so, and, so you're focusing on the kind of the group of people who are interested in space policy, that audience, there's myths that have dominated in within that community, even though they should be much more concerned about the evidence and the reasons. And if they're building a scientific case for space exploration, you expect them to adhere to the epistemic norms or standards of their discipline. And yet they don't when it comes to advocating for the thing that they want, which is unusual. But I guess there's a separate question then about how that professional or interested party literature or debate gets translated to the more general public. But your point is that we need to clean up the debate within the, the policy groups before we can really do an effective job on the public and political level. Yeah, I mean, I'm always going to campaign for more careful discourse. And I think, you know, the, the issue about the general public brings up the concerns about, okay, you know, we, we know that you know, reasoned approaches aren't necessarily effective with the public, uh, but wouldn't it be nice if, if they ultimately were? Because, I mean, that, that's part of the, one of the big sells, right, for space exploration is that that this is going to make people more scientifically literate. Now, there's not really good evidence suggesting that, but I think that's on the radar of everyone that, hey, it would be nice if, you know, uh, the average person knows more science, uh, is a better reasoner. Um, and, you know, it would be ironic if, you know, somehow you succeed in improving the reasoning ability of the average uh, person. And then they go, well, wait a minute, you only ever gave me bad reasons for space before. So, um, I mean, you know, I don't know how decisive that concern is. I don't think it is at all. But um, yeah, it could be counterproductive. But I mean, do you think part of it is driven by the fact that maybe the people who are presenting these myths or reasons don't really believe them themselves? Like, I mean, th that they don't, th those reasons aren't the reasons why they are space advocates or advocates of space exploration? Um, that certainly could be the case. I mean, uh, I mean you know, I, I try not to read between the lines here. I try to take people for, for what they state. Uh, so if, you know, folks that have made these arguments want to disclaim them, uh, you know, that would be interesting to, to, to learn and maybe to learn, you know, why it is they, they uh, pursued that line of reasoning? Did they think it was effective? Did they have evidence that it was effective? Or was this just part of the, you know, the, the standard, uh, the, the basic space advocacy package? Uh, because I think, you know, there is a tradition here and that, okay, these are like, you know, the two or three reasons you always bring up. And, you know, everyone just keeps doing that. Uh, because, you know, when, when they uh, heard a speaker talk when they were younger, they gave those reasons. So it must have been assumed that these are the these are the reasons for space exploration. And so it could well be the case that in this more scientific setting, it is just sort of parroting things that you don't necessarily adhere to, but that, you know, hey, it's again, it's part of the standard package, so let's add it in. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to sort of make a, an assumption about any particular person. I mean, because I think there are people that probably really do uh, believe those things uh, when they say them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the fair perspective to take. But I, I suspect that for at least some people, and myself included, because I know I do this 
is that I spare my cognitive resources for certain things and not for other things. So, you know, I often do mention statistics on graduate employability when it's at open days for my university when I'm trying to encourage people to come and study at university. But I don't really believe them, and I think they're probably incorrect in many ways. But I, it's part of the standard package, so I couldn't be seen not to say it. And I, I waste my cognitive energies on other things that I think are, are more important. I do, however, want to maybe wrap up this conversation because we're just over an hour now. Um, we haven't really had a chance to talk about, let's say, maybe some distinctive philosophical issues that are raised by space exploration. I'm just wondering whether you had any um, kind of examples of this. So, you know, is, is there something, is there, are there new philosophical insights that can be drawn from the study of, of space exploration? Or is it just deploying known styles of philosophical argument to the debate about space policy? Um, so I don't, I'd really have to think about that one more to, to, to have a, an answer I'd really stand behind. Uh, on the top of my head, no, I don't know that, that we've yet encountered anything tremendously new that you know we've had a need for new uh, ideas yet. But at the same time, I mean, I, I, I want to remain open. I don't want to close off the idea that we could discover something that really says, okay, we were approaching this the wrong way from a philosophical or ethical point of view. Now we need to sort of rebuild up. Right? So, so the whole idea that happens in science, right, where you know you encounter new observations, which makes you recognize that the assumptions of your basic theory were wrong. So you've got to rewrite that theory. Uh, I think you know we face the same possibility in philosophy and ethics uh, that we could encounter experiences in space that cause us to really reconsider our basic assumptions about, say, what's valuable. Uh, and this is something I sort of run through in uh, the, my own chapter to, to the Ethics of Space Exploration uh, book, is that you know, um, there's going to be this fluidity between the ethics of space and, and the scientific exploration that um, you know, we shouldn't presume that we already know what's important about environments in space, what aspects are valuable in themselves. Uh, and that you know, until we actually learn about those environments, maybe until we actually have experience living in them, uh, it's going to be hard to decide in advance, you know, what are the things worth protecting, uh, what are the things worth studying. Uh, so, um, so I would say, you know, what we know about already is that, you know, space will influence our thinking in philosophy and ethics in particular. Uh, but I'm not sure, you know, what what that impact is going to be. I'm not sure about its extent. I'm not sure about the details. And what I don't want to do, what what I would uh, certainly hope we uh, avoid is assuming that we do already know that there is nothing, say, in space that uh, we need to consider as a novel source of experience or deliberation. So to, to keep not only an open mind, but an open ethical and philosophical mind that, you know, the theory that you think is the best one about right and wrong uh, might not remain unchanged uh, after we learn from space. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to me that there could be some interesting questions to be explored there around you know, the effects of long-term space exploration on family relationships or, um, you know, the effects of, of time dilation and things like this. If the, But those are really highly speculative questions. And I guess we don't want to preempt any judgment or answers to those when we don't really, uh, we don't experience them or we don't have any practical experience of them. So keeping the open future in that way seems like a, 
a valuable stance, one that's uh, epistemically uh, humble. And that's probably a good way to, to be when it comes to this debate. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think an analogy with environmental ethics also helps too, that um, partly what what motivated environmental ethics was environmental science. And that, you know, now that you have more knowledge about how ecosystems function, you've got this sort of new range of entities that you might think uh, are candidates for moral consideration. And so, you know, I don't think um, our understanding of, you know, any other terrestrial, um, sorry, terrestrial, I don't think our understanding of any um, extraterrestrial environment is at the point where, you know, we've got the catalog of what is and is not there in a way that lets us know uh, what might be, you know, worth protecting, what might be valuable in itself uh, in that environment. Uh, and so that's, I think, one of the important, you know, ways that uh, future study is going to impact uh, ethical deliberation. Yeah, I think it's a good idea because um, many other philosophical debates about technology get way ahead of technology as well, or way ahead of scientific developments. Okay, James, um, I think I will wrap up at this point. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining me for this conversation. And, um, you know, if there's any work that you want me to link to in the associated post with the the podcast, um, feel free to let me know. Uh, But otherwise, uh, thanks. Yeah, no, thanks for having me.